So that was another thing that the patient had to go through and they had to debunk it because they felt like an imposter. So that's probably another thing. The after cancer period is a very important period. And very often people don't talk about it and they don't mean bad. It's just because they think that because it's over, it's over like a bad cold, but it's a long journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston-Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Sophie Blanda. Sophie is a certified coach who has worked in oncology for 14 years. She came to the cafe to discuss how to support someone who has cancer, share some misconceptions that she has observed among caregivers and supporters of those with cancer, and debunk some common myths. Grab your warm drink and tune in for a great conversation. Hi, Sophie. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so very much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, but first, Nikita, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so, uh, yes, um, who am I? Well, I'm a former teacher, I'm a certified coach. I've worked in oncology for 12 years now, and now I'm working in HR. Basically, I always worked either in a school, in a hospital. What do I do? I try to help people coping and getting used to change. I guess it's a very popular concept these days, but that's basically what I do. I'd like to see myself as someone that you can physically like take a walk and reflect and someone to lean on and then you can get grab some tools and then move on your own way. Yes. Well, <laughs> you see yourself correctly because you are a fantastic resource and a really supportive person. <laughs> so I, I love that about you. What spurred your passion in oncology? What gets you so excited about oncology? Well, 14 years ago, when I started volunteering in oncology, I never thought I would like it so much. I was a teacher back then. And working in a school, working with students, no matter how they are, you always work with what's real. And what I discovered in working in oncology, it's exactly the same. You work with what's real, with what matters. So that's why I immediately felt comfortable with it. Does it ever get hard or heavy, though, when you work in oncology? No. No? No. The only thing sometimes that at the end of the day that I asked myself was, did I did enough? Was I enough present for the people I was working with? But you mean, hear a story. People say, oh, how could you do that? It depends how, how you see it. Working in oncology is a very energetic place and you always work with what's matter. So I don't think I never saw it myself like that. And uh, one thing I hate the most is when people looked at me like, oh, you're a saint. I said, no, 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 nobody's a saint who works in oncology. It's because you're happy to be there. And I was happy to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe would have been other places I wouldn't have been as comfortable as. But for me, it was a privilege. It was a gift. So how did you cope or if you ever lost a patient or someone that you were supporting? Well, I've lost very personal people, close people to me. That was way before I started working in oncology. So I knew quite a bit about oncology, palliative care and all that. Have I ever lost? Yes, it happens, unfortunately. As we know, one person, almost one out of two persons will be diagnosed one day with cancer, but only one out of four will die of it. 
So unfortunately, it happened. I was sad. I was sad, of course. I mean, we got a relationship. I was sad. And I experienced and I lived my sadness. Let's put it this way. You cannot avoid that. I mean, you're working with people. You're not working with books or software. Yeah. So, of course. But it's okay. It's part of the relationship. It's part of letting go of. So, it's okay. I like that response. And with that statistic that you mentioned about, you know, maybe half of people be being diagnosed with cancer at some point, it means that we all likely know someone with it or will encounter someone with it or will have it ourselves. And so what would you say is a good way to support someone who has just received a diagnosis of cancer? Listen, don't go too fast because the person may not be as fast thinking as you are. Most of the person who receive a diagnosis are in a state of shock, unless you see it coming. And even if you see it coming, it's still a shock to hear for yourself. So I would say, just listen, just be there uh, and never forget yourself as a caregiver. That's a very unfortunate error that they'll do. They'll go all the way for the loved one. They mean well, but they cannot do it forever. And in a way, it may also jeopardize the relationship. So it's good to be there with the person. You just listen. You just stare. You don't anticipate unless the person asks you to anticipate. You just follow the person you're next with. I like that. What mistakes do you think people may make? And I'm not sure that mistake is the right word, but as they try to navigate their care, figure out what's next for them. Are there any things that you see? people do that maybe can be avoided or should be avoided? As a patient? As a patient. Very often, they won't give themselves the right to cry or to ask for help. Very often, they will say, it won't affect my life nor my loved one's life. And they mean well, but it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Even if, let's take an example, you don't have chemotherapy, so it's not written on your forehead that you have a cancer, okay? You still have the diagnosis and you still have to Live with that fear that's inside you and the not knowing and waiting and waiting for the phone call, waiting for the results, waiting in the hospital and all that. So it does change. So there's a lot of energy at the beginning saying it won't affect us. It's not possible. And if you embrace that and if you you accept it, it will have a less bigger impact than if you fight it. I like that. What types of support have you been able to provide to cancer patients and their families over the years? I always believe that support has two forms. The first one is information. People need to understand what's happening. Very often, people like to know what's coming and they like to understand the outcome and how to prepare themselves. It helps them to cope. It reassures them and it gives them a sense of control because having a diagnosis of cancer, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a television ad and it was very good because you could see the person receiving a diagnosis and then fall off the chair. It's a total loss of control. So because of that, having information, it helps. And it also helps to separate the steps. So information in terms of programs, in terms of how to cope with difficult emotions, support also in terms of 
what is example a brain tumor? What are the difference between the different surgeries? What to expect? What about mastectomy, different kinds of reconstructions? Uh, what about chemotherapy? What is chemotherapy? How can I prepare myself? It, the day it ends, is it the end of it? Do I have side effects? What about radiotherapy and this and that? So knowing about what's coming and how to prepare. And I have a place to answer their questions too, because having information is good. Having the right information and not Dr. Google, I really believe <laughs> that. So I think it's important to have the right information, but also to have an answer to their question. Like you may be someone who presents uh, different types of reconstructions, but if the person just want to know, would they be able to go and swim? Mm-hmm. Well, for her, that's the only thing that matters. Uh, brain cancer, would I be able to walk again? Would I be able to ride my bike again? So it's important to adapt the, the information according to the patient's need. So first. And second, the support will be a place to vent, a place where the person will feel safe enough to talk about what matters to them. And so I really believe in that. I also believe that peer support, the one-on-one, you know, like I was lucky so far, I've never had a diagnosis of cancer. So there's a lot of things I can talk about, but sometimes a person just wants to hear the voice of a survivor because they feel they can connect more and it's perfectly legitimate. So what I've been providing has been, well, support, information, and also specific resources that you may need. Sometimes it will be practical resources, like uh, I need transportation. I don't know where to buy that kind of uh, equipment. I have lymphedema. I need this. I need that. Where can I get that? So I think it's important to also provide practical resources uh, and also to debunk everything about anxiety. Is it normal to be anxious? Is it normal to be stressed? Is it normal to be scared? Is it normal to think that you may die when you get a diagnosis of cancer? It is 99.9% of the people, the first reflex. The, the person may not word it, but that's the first thing you think, my God, I am going to die. So saying it won't make it happen, but they need to be able to let it out of their system. So I think it's important also to validate their feelings. So that's why I try to give them resources just to say, it's okay what you go through. There's no one pattern. There's no one way for everybody. Some people will cry, others will not. And it's okay. It's not because you don't cry, because you don't care or you're not affected by it. So I think it's, it's important to validate whatever state of mind you are when you are, when you receive a diagnosis of cancer and when you go through your treatment. So that's what I've been doing. I try to facilitate that journey, which is an organized trip that no one chose but forced into it. That's how I see it. I like the way you put that, an organized trip that no one chose. I hear a lot in what you're saying. It sounds like a lot of emotional support and managing emotions, managing feelings. And that's so critical. I guess that's where your coaching comes in a little bit to help people unpack and to process that. You're right. Coaching is a, it's like dancing with your client. So that's what it is, is to make sure that when there is a need, well, you lead the person towards that resource or when there's someone that it's something that it's stuck or hidden that needs to be, that comes out, then you try to use different approach to give the person a safe place to share it. So if it's not with me, 
fine. But at least find a place where the person will feel secure enough to share. How did the pandemic affect care for for patients, caregivers, those who want to offer support? In a way that nobody would ever talk. Before COVID, having a diagnosis of cancer was something that you couldn't plan, that you couldn't, nobody, and I've never met anyone saying, you know what, in two years I have cancer, so I take a year off, I'm going to plan this, I'm going to plan that, I'm going to go on a trip now because, and it will be a good time. No, it doesn't happen this way. So it's always unexpected and unwanted. COVID on the top of that added not even twice as much because cancer we know about. When you get a diagnosis of cancer, there's people around you who will tell you this is what will happen, this will this, and you need your network. You need your support. You need your network. Ask your friends. COVID, not only we didn't know what it was, not only we didn't know when it ended, not only we didn't have a cure, we were bombarded patients with make sure you don't see anyone because everybody's a threat. (laughs) So, So you took out the most precious resource for any patient's oncology or not, social support, and you isolated them. So it was imaginable what people went through and no one saw the end of it. So because of that, um, I had a patient yesterday who told me something. She said, Sophie, you know what? I'm very frustrated when people, a survivor of a few years ago would say, I understand what you go through. She said, I had that through COVID. So she doesn't have the right to come and say, well, I know what you go through now because I went through that alone and I had to be physically alone. So nobody could come and watch a movie with me. Nobody could come and make me a soup. Nobody could come with a hamburger and eat it with me. Nobody could come for a walk with me. I had to do that all by myself. So being sick in that time of COVID was difficult for all patients, I'm sure. But from what I've experienced with oncology patients, what they needed the most was their loved one, their friends, and they were cut from that. So it was very hard for them. It's very true. When you think about advocacy for oncology patients in general, I know sometimes some patients are intimidated or maybe overwhelmed and don't feel like they should advocate. Can you think of an example where someone advocated and it was a good thing that he did? It's true what you said, Nikki. It's a first reflex and... um... I'm not judging that. I would probably that would probably be my first reflex as well because you feel very vulnerable and you're dealing with people who have experience and know what they do. And because of that, you become very vulnerable and humble in a way. Okay. So, but very often I must say there are things that you need from that medical team. Mm-hmm. Example: patients would say, Sophie, the surgeon is treating me. Like if I, if I was a five-year-old and I have the right to be treated as an adult. Others, at the time, I will be told, Sophie, the oncologist is treating me like if I had a PhD in medicine and I don't. I just want to have answers to my questions with just this, this, this and that. Nobody means bad intention here. Of course not. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it could be the level of communication or the patient's needs that are different. So that's why it's important for the patients to be clear with what she or he needs in order to communicate the needs. Like you want to know a lot, you ask a lot. You don't want to know a lot. You want to have answers to your questions. It's perfectly fine. But what's not said is misinterpreted. 
So I think it's important for patients to think that it's not one fits all, but the person that you have in front of you does not know if you don't tell him or her. So it's important that you right away from the beginning, you said, okay, I had that kind of appointment. There's something that's missing. What is it? And then you can take notes if you want. And next time, then you share it. You say, well, last time you explained many things and I didn't think I didn't understand. Is there a place where I can have that information written so I can go and see? Because again, the worst thing is certainly Dr. Google when you want an answer. <laughs> oh, that's why I think that patients should be able to say it. A concrete example, yes, I had a patient once who was meeting with her oncologist and she always felt that her questions were not answered, although she had prepared a list and it was very hard. So we were talking about it and she felt very frustrated. And because of that, she even thought that it impacted her collaboration in the treatment because she was reluctant to every step that he was presenting because she felt that he was not answering her questions. So why should I do this? Why should I say yes and this and that? And because an oncology treatment could be months and months, it had an impact on her. So um, we worked together and uh, I said, what have you tried so far in terms of strategies? And she said, well, I always came up with my list of questions. I said, has it given you any results? And she said, no. I said, well, it means that you have to stay in the strategies. So uh, following the appointment, she came to a doctor and she said, today, I don't have any questions. So the doctor was very surprised. She said, I have only needs and I need you to answer me. That's my need today. And she started with a need and set of questions. So the professional's reaction was, of course, what do you need? Oh, I think it's important that the person realize that they are working with a medical care team. They're always the same person, but the patients vary. So the patients must be in a way responsible for part of the relationship. The relationship can go both ways. So if the patient never shares her concern, her needs, then there won't be any possible answer to that. So I think it's important that they listen to themselves too and be able to voice themselves when needed. They may be surprised of the answer. That was very nicely put. Are there any questions that patients should ask throughout their journey? Any questions that stand out to you that you know people should always put in the back of their mind? I need to ask about this. I think the right question is what's important to them. As I told you earlier, what's important to one person may not be for another one. If I could put one question, I would say, would be always to make sure that you have a place to ask your question. What if I have a question? What do I do? Who do I call? So it empowers you because so, so it's the day after or a week later, you have a question or something come up then you have a place to call. But usually with the pivot nurse, it's settled, it's already organized. But if it's not, I would say that's probably the thing that I would suggest. Always make sure that you have a number to call, a person to call. But in terms of questions, it's so different from one another that there's no one fits all. Like everybody's different. So it's not only a matter of cancer being different. It's also one person is different from another one. So I think you have to listen to yourself Great suggestion. Are there any myths and misconceptions that you think are worth dispelling when it comes to cancer care, cancer support? When you're diagnosed with cancer, your journey starts on day one, unless you suspect it before day one. But it does not end the day you finish your treatment. 
kimono. And one misconception, and people again mean well. They will say, okay, you're done. It's over now. It's over now. Let's move on. We don't talk about it. Just, let's enjoy life. How come you cannot enjoy life? So that's probably the biggest misconception that you could see. Or oh, your hair growing, so you must be fine. You're okay. You're like you used to be. It doesn't work like that. And the best example I can give you, the day someone is diagnosed is like if you're put at the top of the Everest mountain, no winter coat, no oxygen, and you're told, breathe, breathe, and you survive at the top of the Everest mountain. Every step of the way, a chemo, not chemo, radio, surgery, and this and that, and you survive and you do it. You adapt yourself and your body to extreme condition and a high level of stress. The day you're told that by your doctor, your medical team, you're on a follow-up program, I'll see you in six months or in a year, you cannot throw yourself down the mountain. So this time, you're going to take time to go down the mountain. So the, the biggest misconception for caregivers and friends around someone who's been diagnosed with cancer is to think that once the last appointment where you're told that you're free to go or you're on a follow-up program, it's over. It's the person is the same before the appointment and after the appointment. Mm -hmm. So she has, or he has to go down slowly. And there's anxiety that may come out of it. Patients have told me when I was under treatment, I felt safe. I had a place to be. I had people to take care of me, people to ask me questions. Every time I had a headache, I knew there would be someone to answer me. Now I have to live with the fear of recurrence. And that is not something you get rid of. In so I would say that for people around that person, just go accordingly. So don't go with your perception that, oh, it's over. That's it. Of course, it's a natural tendency because it's reassuring, but it's a very dangerous path to follow for the relationship between the former patient and the person he's or she is relationship with. You have to go accordingly. Some people will go faster. Others will take more time. And it's okay. You, they were at the top of the Everest mountain. So I would say that's probably number one misconception. Oh, the second thing that patient told me, they were told very often that because they didn't lose their hair, because they didn't have chemo, it was not a big cancer. But if you lose your hair, oh my God, it's a big cancer. We are talking seriously here. So that was another thing that the patient had to go through and they had to debunk it because they felt like an imposter. So that's probably another thing. The after cancer period is a very important period. And very often people don't talk about it and they don't mean bad. It's just because they think that because it's over, it's over like a bad cold, but it's a long journey. It doesn't end with that. It's a long journey. That is so true. And even this misconception that you mentioned about, oh, well, you didn't lose your hair, so it wasn't so bad. It sounds like minimizing their experience, which is never a good thing. And there are also types of cancer that sometimes people are will think, oh, it's not as big as. I'll give you an example. If you have lung cancer, it's one thing. If you have breast cancer, people say, oh, breast cancer, it's not that bad. What's real is that breast cancer, financially speaking, has more resources, more researchers. So what's true today was not true five years ago, was not even thinkable 10 years ago. All that because of research. So in a way, it's true, but that doesn't mean it's nothing. So the word cancer is a cancer, and it affects people the same way. 
Definitely. Sophie, on the note of transitioning after you've finished your treatment, I know that you're working on an after treatment transition program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. We're four researchers. As you know, I'm a certified coach. So I'm working with the surgeon. I'm working with two researchers at the MUHC. And we got a grant from La Fondation de Saint-Quebec. And basically, it's based on the NAFTA cancer program that I made up before I worked at the, the MUHC. But it's based on the fact that it's a transition. And I don't like to say after cancer, you go back to normal life. I hate the word normal life because I don't think it applies, not because you're not normal after cancer, but because normalcy, it's something that moves on with life. What's normal for you today may not have been that 10 years ago. It might be different 10 years later. So the word normalcy means everybody the same, which has never been true before an episode of cancer or not. And so I like to say active life. Active life is you're part of a group, of a society, of a community. So I like to say active life. So basically what I do, there are many researchers that are fortunately exploring that difficult period. The research I'm involved in is developing with the patient different tools. Um, The image I can give you, very often I work with image. It's like you're getting out of the hospital and you got a map. You know where you want to go. You have your backpack. Your backpack is everything you've done and you've been through all your life, your experience, your strength, your challenges, your good experience, difficult experience. So you have your backpack, you have your map. But the goal of that program is to help you navigate your map. So first, determine your destination. What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What do you want to accomplish? How are you going to do it? So with coaching tools, I don't like to say I show because I don't show them. We all have strength. I just make sure that I I shed light on these strengths. And so people can use it. And I also explore with them what they have to let go. So it's a form of bereavement. What do they have to let go? It could be a physical challenge. It could be a professional challenge, but it could also be an image of themselves that they have or special plan that they always thought they would do. So there's a form of bereavement and you cannot move forward if you don't acknowledge it. So I help them to acknowledge what do they have to let go in order to move forward. So that's the coaching program with me. And then some of the court, some participants in the court will continue exploring their objective individually with another certified coach because I cannot do everything. I don't have time. So I'm doing the equipment part, which is what's your map? So I, they draw their map with me. What's their objective? We explore what they have to let go and we explore how are you going to do it using your own tools. So your tools are different than mine. So I'm using very uh, Martin Seligman tools assessment to shed light on people's strength that are already there that sometimes we don't pay attention or we take for granted. And then some of the court will move into individual sessions with my colleague. 
So the goal is really to enable them to do the next step. And what are some of the challenges that people often face in this time of transition? I imagine that one might be fitting back into the workplace, but I suppose there are many others. There are many others. Going back to work is a challenging period, of course. Going back to active life also. Active could be someone who stopped working or a mother at home or transitioning or, I mean, who am I? I have been a patient for 6, 8, 12, 15, 18 months. I was a patient. I gave up everything. That journey changed me. I'm not the same. I don't know how. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I'm not the same. And I don't know where to go. Or I don't know. I'm afraid. And COVID didn't help. Right. I'll give you a very simple example based on what we talked about previously. Patients were told for months or a year not to have any social contact. Now they can't because physically they're well enough. And they can't because according to the government, we can't. They're afraid. They're not afraid of catching COVID. They don't know how. They've lost a touch. They feel uncomfortable being surrounded by people, not only because they don't want to be asked questions about their cancer, they don't know what to say, but it's also the fact that how, how am I going to present myself? What am I going to say? My friends have moved on. I feel like on a sidetrack. So these are also very, uh, unfortunately, very common challenges that people experience. Yeah. I know, Sophie, that you've worked with young adults in the past. And I think sometimes people don't think or expect that young adults can get cancer. Oh, you're too young. No way. Do you know of any who maybe were dismissed on their road to diagnosis or had a difficult challenge to diagnosis and how they overcame that? Unfortunately, it's true, Nikita. And it's very sad because not only that they will increase the feeling of being lonely, of being in a place where they do not belong, that it will be a constant reminder in people's eyes. And that is very difficult because you know that you're young. You know you're not supposed to be here. So what's next? I don't need your pity. I'm here to move on. So it's very, very difficult. So one thing that helps is when people, young adults can get to, with other young adults who've experienced the same challenges, relationships, confidence. Uh, how many young adults have told me, Sophie, I'm not going to continue to invest myself in that relationship. What for? I don't know where I'll be in six months. I don't know where I'll be in a year. I can't impose that to her or him. They're too young. I said, why do you see it that far? You are going through a difficult period. You are fortunate enough to be in a relationship that supports you that helps you. It's true that it's hard. It's hard for both of you. So why don't you just try to seize the moment day by day to see where it leads you. And I think that young adults more needs to be surrounded with people of his or her age. However, there's a, a negative side to it. The downside is you see that people are moving fast and you're always on the sideline. You say, am I ever going to be like that again? They have plans, projects before COVID, of course, trips and this and that. And I'm going to get a promotion, go back to work, go back to study. Oh, no, I'm going to change job. Who cares? I'm going to do this. And the young adult is like, I cannot afford to have even those talks because I'm on old, as opposed to 
a retired person who will probably will find it hard, but won't have the same feeling of being left aside from this, her community. So that is a challenge. It's a definitely a challenge. Another challenge that a young adult may have is if it has treatment that affects physical appearance. And that's, I mean, although we try to convince ourselves that it's not important, it is important for at any age. But as a young adult, it's even more important. It's like the first contact and it's how every social network and media and actors and actresses, you know, everybody's built around it. So that made it worse. And it creates a feeling of isolation. I cannot go to that because take a look at me. I don't even recognize myself. I feel so apart. So it is. So I would suggest definitely to have a network of friends who are, I wouldn't say, it's not a matter of being feeling pity, but who takes you for who you are. You're not a cancer on two legs. You are so-and-so or so-and-so. And you have things you like, things you don't like. Unfortunately, treatment that you have to go through, and because of that, it may affect your moods, it may affect your look, it may affect your level of energy, but basically you are not a cancer. You have cancer, but you're not a cancer. So surround yourself with people who will see you like that. love the way you put that. As we wind down, you mentioned equipping people with tools, support, resources. You mentioned that idea of a backpack. What do you think are some of the key tools, maybe characteristics that that someone needs or should develop to go through a journey like this? I think that would be the key word, la bienveillance. So it would be kindness toward yourself. Basically is you have a good day, enjoy it. You have a bad day, sit on it. And if you sit on it for an hour, sit on it for an hour. If it's half a day, it's half a day. And if it's a day, it's a day. Mm-hmm. Don't spend energy fighting. I'm not saying to let it go. It's different, but it's normal to feel down. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal to still laugh, even if you're under treatment. It's normal. Everything you experience is normal. So just welcome it. Be kind towards yourself. You're not as patient as you used to be. Acknowledge it, share it, and that's it. That's what I would say. I would say kindness toward yourself. There's no, there's no hero here. There's no one way of doing it. That's on one fits all. That's what I would say. I like that. Do you have any favorite resources, go-tos that you like to refer people to? I must say that the Canadian Cancer Society has a very good directory for resources, depending where you live, on your postal code and on your needs. So there you can have specific support groups. You can have access to information. So I think resources by the Canadian Cancer Society is a very reliable place. Another place is any national organization that you may have. I'm thinking about the Brain Tumor Foundation, La Fondation de Saint-Québec, Leukemia, Lung Cancer Canada, Bladder Cancer, Prostate Cancer Canada, any national organization will give you not only the right information, but also very often will give you resources appropriate to what you go through. So it could be a support group, could be online, yes, because of COVID, it could be a blog, it could be a Q&A, it could be workshop. It could be uh, seminars to uh, by different specialists. 
So that's what I would say. I would say those two approaches are reliable sources. Of course, your doctor and your specialist is foremost the most reliable sources, but let's say you're home and you have a question, please do not Google. Doctor, let's <laughs> say, how do no, no, you'll find everything there. Finally, Sophie, any closing thought? Cancer is an extraordinary situation. COVID has been an extraordinary condition. So it's not one plus one equals two. And you cope with both of them the way you can. There's no book written on it. So it's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just acknowledge it. Thank you, Sophie. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe. Well, I'm the one who feels privileged to get to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Sophie. Some key takeaways included what's not said is interpreted. Life doesn't automatically go back to normal after the last treatment. You have cancer, but you are not a cancer. Just listen, be there, and don't forget yourself as a caregiver. And also don't be afraid to ask questions. I hope you were sure to note down her favorite resources for reliable information about cancer care. If you'd like to get a free medication list, I've made one for you. The link to download it is in the show notes. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.